0: Friends, I'm Jared Halverson, this is Unshaken, and I'm thrilled to have you back for some more scripture study this week. Last week, we studied Helaman chapter 1 through 6. We saw Nephite society go round and round the pride cycle, and we saw the ministry of Nephi and Lehi, the sons of Helaman, begin to unfold. This week, we'll pick up where we left off. The ministry of Nephi will be our focus. We'll see a few more rounds of the pride cycle. That never seems to go away. And we'll set the stage for next week when we get to meet Samuel the Lamanite. But I want to start this week talking about something called the Johari window. It was developed by a pair of communication scholars, and the name comes from kind of an amalgamation of their two first names. And it's called a window because there are four panes to this. What the Johari window is trying to make sense of is how well do we know ourselves and how well do other people know us. Are there things about me that I know and they know? We call that the open area. Are there things that they know about me but I don't seem to know about myself? We call that the blind spot. Are there things that I know about myself but they don't know about me? They call that the facade or the hidden area. Sometimes it's things we just don't want people to know about us. And then there's the area where I don't know about it and neither do they. And as far as communication studies are concerned, the point of the Johari window is to try to get as much as you can into that open area so that you know yourself and so that others know you well. If you're open to feedback, then you can ask others, what do you see in me that I might not see in myself? Help me emerge from my blind spot. And if you're open with yourself and can handle some greater transparency, then you're open to sharing with others things that you know about yourself, perhaps some weaknesses or struggles that they might not be aware of in hopes that then they'll help you with it. In spiritual terms, the basic idea is how do we bring things out of the darkness and into the light? Of course, you can also flip the whole thing around and say, instead of this being about me, this could be about someone else. What do they know about themselves that I also know? We'd both agree on that. There's the open space compared to what do they want me to know about them, that I do or do not know, and what do they not want me to know about them, which I do or do not know. I introduce this concept today because this is the time in the Book of Mormon where the Gadianton robbers really start coming to the fore. We saw the creation of this secret band last week, and the idea of secrecy is key. And to me, that's where the Johari window comes in. What do they not want me to know about them? That's the secrecy behind Kishkumen and Gadianton. But today you'll see the prophet nephi bringing some of those dark things out into the open in ways that only a prophet can so if you were to take today's material and superimpose it over the johari window you'd see nephite society up in the open area the things that any member of nephite society would look around and say yep this is the world we're living in these are our days as we'll see compare that to the blind spot area These are things that Nephi knows, but the people seem to be unaware of. And so he's going to be crying repentance in hopes of waking them up to those realities. Gadianton, meanwhile, works on the other axis. Things that they know that they're doing wrong, that they don't want people to know about. Hiding behind their own facade, keeping people in the darkness. We'll see Nephi bringing some of that out into the open as well. When he miraculously reveals the murderer of the chief judge. We'll see that in a few chapters. Overall, when you take a spiritual view of the Johari window, what amazes me is to see this tug of war where you see God and his prophets trying to bring everything towards that open space so that we can know as we are known, as Paul taught the Corinthians, to bring the hidden things of darkness into light. The scriptures talk about our iniquities being spoken upon the housetops or not having a cloak to hide our sins behind unmasking evil or hypocrisy. There will be no facade at the last day. So things you know about yourself that others don't know, well, eventually everyone will know. And the flip side, things that aren't known to you, things that are in your blind spot, you'll be made painfully aware of, but painful only for a short period, pricking our conscience, opening our eyes to see the things that were in our blind spot so that we can repent of them and bring those into the light. Again, as far as the Johari window is concerned, the purpose of God is to bring everything into that open area. So you can probably guess what the adversary's goal is, to bring everything down into that hidden space. His favorite is probably to bring as much as possible down into that facade area, because that's where hypocrisy reigns. It's interesting how often he will try to get us to do things with feigned promises of anonymity. That's what he said to Cain, right? You can murder and get gain. We saw that last week. And then the ironic promise, and no one will know. Here we are thousands of years later, still talking about it. Printed in black and white in the most well-read book on earth, the Bible. And yet trying to convince us to keep things in the darkness. Meanwhile, he also tries to keep us in the dark. Moving more and more things into our blind spot. Increasing our ignorance or even tempting us towards willful ignorance. You see, those two corners, if he can get us into the ignorance and the hypocrisy, and he's starting to move things into this realm of the unknown. Perhaps this is the simplest way to make sense of things. Prophets are trying to pull us toward the first quadrant. Full transparency, perfect knowledge, nothing to hide. They pull us out of hypocrisy by showing us that we can't keep the truth hidden from God. And they pull us out of ignorance to show us things that we can't otherwise see, especially about our own mistakes. They even reveal the unknown bringing to our understanding things that we couldn't possibly know in any other way. The adversary, meanwhile, pulls us away from the first quadrant. His ultimate goal is to get everything into that fourth, complete lack of knowledge. He does that by pulling us towards ignorance, denying what we know, even a willful ignorance at times, and towards hypocrisy, hiding our sins, keeping those in the darkness. And he even pulls us towards the kind of skepticism and relativism that denies that anything can be known at all. You see, God wants us to know all. So he constantly invites us to ask, to seek, to knock. That eliminates our blind spot. He also invites us to tell, to confess our sins, for example. That eliminates the facade. He wants us to be open to feedback. What am I not seeing here? And to be open about ourselves, letting people know about our weakness, where we need help. All of that requires us to be vulnerable, which puts a premium upon our own humility. At the opposite extreme, Satan wants us to know nothing. So he seeks to minimize our introspection and our confession. He doesn't want us to look inward to overcome our blind spot or to let others know who we really are to overcome our facade. In fact, he wants us to think we already know everything. That way we're denying our ignorance, which actually makes it grow. And he tries to convince us to keep secrets from others, especially secrets about ourselves, which increases the hypocrisy hiding behind that facade. Both of those elements, thinking we know and not wanting others to know, are centered in pride. In some ways, both extremes and both pulls, this tug of war, are described back in Alma chapter 12, verse 10 through 11, where what's God's ultimate goal? That we might know his mysteries until we know them in full, whereas the adversary's goal is that we might know nothing concerning God's mysteries. That's the tug of war that's taking place across the Johari window. And that's the tug of war we'll see today in this second part of Helaman. You'll see the prophet Nephi pulling people towards knowledge, pulling away the facade of the Gadianton robbers and crying repentance to pull people out of their blind spot. And you'll see the Gadianton robbers pulling people towards darkness. There is no sin. You don't have to worry about how you might feel about those things. And we're not doing anything wrong here. So don't peek behind the curtain. And it's all going to revolve around this episode during the ministry of Nephi. Now, back in chapter 5, we saw Nephi teaching throughout Nephite territory and the land of Zarahemla, teaching both Nephites and Lamanites. Later in chapter 5, he goes further south into the land of Nephi. That's where he's imprisoned. He and his brother have that incredible experience there. Talk about the tug of war between darkness and light, right? Then in Helaman 6, many of the Lamanites move to the land northward, and Nephi and Lehi go there as well to preach unto them. And it's there that we'll pick up with them here at the beginning of chapter 7. You see, in verse 1, he and his brother are coming back home to the land of Zarahemla from the land northward. Verse 2, he'd been up there preaching the word of God unto them, prophesying many things. But in verse 3, here's the bad news, they did reject all his words, insomuch that he could not stay among them, but returned again unto the land of his nativity. Unfortunately, things at home aren't any better than what he'd seen up north. In verse 4, notice the description of what he's coming home to seeing the people in a state of such awful wickedness. Why? Because those Gadianton robbers filled the judgment seats. They'd usurped power and authority of the land, just like they had wanted, ambition and materialism, pride and greed. And now that they're in charge, what can they do? Lay aside the commandments of God, not even doing the least aright before him, and doing no justice unto the children of men. Again, you change the law, you're free to do all of that. Verse 5, society really has been turned on its head. They are condemning the righteous because of their righteousness. Isaiah described this when he talked about good being called evil and evil being called good. People replacing sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. That's exactly what's happening here. Righteousness has become so looked down upon that it's condemned by the wicked they're not just unapologetic in their own wickedness. They have turned the tables on the righteous. They let the guilty and the wicked go unpunished because of their money. Remember what we saw in the previous verse, there's no more justice among the people. Well, if you can pay your way out of problems, if power and wealth are on your side, then you can do whatever you want. Have you noticed that sometimes in our society as well, there seems to be a double standard for the wealthy. They can get away with things. They can either pay their way out of it, or there's such an esteem that follows in the wake of wealth, and we just let things slide. We don't hold them to the same standard we hold other people. Verse 5 continues, those are actually held in office at the head of government to rule and do according to their wills, that they might get gain and glory of the world. You see, the cycle just keeps deepening. And moreover, that they might the more easily commit adultery and steal and kill and do according to their own wills. We've seen a lot of that throughout our study of the book of mormon and worse we see a lot of it in the society that we're a part of today do we see righteousness condemned do we see wickedness working its way even buying its way to respectability if it's making you money it must not be wrong if they're trying to get gain and glory it's the same pride and greed ambition and materialism we keep on seeing if they do that to more easily commit adultery Well, added that to the previous two, and now you have the three temptations of Christ all over again. Stones to bread, that's lust of the flesh. There's adultery. Throw yourself from the temple. There's pride. There's get the glory of the world. And worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Well, there's materialism or getting gain. In fact, right there in verse 5, you see sex, violence, and money. The three things that sell movie tickets. The three things that seem to be becoming more and more an inherent part of our culture especially that last line is relevant, that people just want to do according to their own wills. You do you. No judgment, no standard. There's the individualism and the hedonism and the relativism that seem to reign in our day as well. And shockingly, verse six says that this great iniquity had come upon the Nephites in the space of not many years. No matter how old or young you and I might be, I think we could probably say the same looking back just the past few years, have things gotten worse? Is there an acceleration of wickedness? No wonder when Nephi sees it, his heart was swollen with sorrow within his breast. Hopefully we're feeling something similar, not despair, not hopelessness, but taking sinfulness seriously enough that at least it causes us sorrow. But what to do with that sorrow? Nephi first turns it upward, and then he turns it outward interesting twist on the two great commandments, loving God and loving neighbor. Well, he turns to God first and then he turns out to his neighbor. And in verse seven through nine, we have a very partial account. We'll see that it lasts much longer than three verses, but here we have that partial account of Nephi's prayer to God. Speaking of that prayer at the end of verse six, it says that he did exclaim it in the agony of his soul. This is heartfelt. This is deep for him. In verse 11, It says that he poured out his soul unto God. Sounds a lot like Enos there. Soul hungering. Lifting his voice high until it reached the heavens. In verse 14, the way he describes that prayer of pouring out my soul unto my God. I love the personal pronouns there. This is my soul. And I am pouring it out to my God. A very personal connection here. Between Heavenly Father and a son who needs him. In fact, before we get to the prayer itself, notice verse 10, 11, and 12, where it happens and what's happening as he prays. In verse 10, it came to pass that it was upon a tower, which was in the garden of Nephi, which was by the highway, which led to the chief market, which was in the city of Zarahemla. This seems to be a very visible place, although he does not seem to be doing this to be seen of men. This is not Nephi's Rameumptom. If anything, it's a lot closer to King Benjamin's tower the better to cry repentance from, which is what he's going to do here. But he does go up and away from the world around him. This in some ways is a closet of sorts, a separation from his surroundings in hopes of connecting instead to God. But what's amazing about it is as he's praying, and again, this is what suggests that it's a lot longer than what we see in three verses. In verse 11, there were certain men passing by. This was a busy street, right? The road that led to the chief market in Zarahemla as they are passing by, they see Nephi pouring out his soul unto God upon the tower. And so they run, they tell the people what they'd seen, and the people come together in multitudes so that they could also know what's the cause of such great mourning for the wickedness of the people. And then in verse 12, when Nephi arises from his prayer, he sees the multitude who'd gathered together. This must have been such an intense prayer that he was completely oblivious to the fact that the multitudes are gathering in the middle of it. Honestly, from my own experience, those seem to be some of the most powerful public prayers I've ever offered, is where the public seems to disappear. And as I close my eyes, it really does feel like I'm alone with Heavenly Father, speaking to Him instead of speaking to the congregation. Sometimes our prayers devolve into some kind of horizontal communication alone what will people think of me? I hope they like my prayer. Instead of closing our eyes and in the process, closing out the world, opening our minds and hearts to God alone instead. That seems to be Nephi's focus, just blinders on. Can you imagine giving this kind of a prayer? And multitudes gathering, that seems like it would be kind of loud or disruptive. But such was the intense focus of Nephi. He seems completely oblivious until it's amen, and then looks up and thinks, whoa, where did all of you come from? And what was it that he'd said in that beautifully, powerfully focused prayer? We saw hints of it last week in introducing the beginning of the book of Helaman, but let's read it a little more closely here. Verse seven. Oh that I could have had my days in the days when my father Nephi first came out of the land of Jerusalem remember when dad Helaman had named his sons Nephi and Lehi, he told them, every time you remember your name, remember the people I named you after. Remember how good they were and try to be good as well. Well, this Nephi must have taken that advice. But the more he thought about that ancestor Nephi, the more he thought, man, I wish I could have lived in those days. If I did, then I could have joyed with him in the promised land. Because by now, My people seem to take this promised land for granted. They no longer care about the responsibilities that go along with the rights attached to this land of promise. And as we know from the Doctrine and Covenants, if we do not do what God says, then we have no promise. Then they took the promised land seriously. Then were his people easy to be entreated. Either he's choosing to forget about Laman and Lemuel here, or perhaps he's focusing on the period after the split when the Nephites are intentionally choosing to follow Nephi, placing their faith in his prophetic guidance. It's that group that was firm to keep the commandments of God, that was slow to be led to do iniquity, that was quick to hearken unto the words of the Lord. Again, still nostalgic in verse 8. Yea, if my days could have been in those days, then would my soul have had joy in the righteousness of my brethren. Instead, what is he feeling? Sorrow, In the wickedness of his people. Verse 9, he then says that beautiful phrase we talked about last week, but behold, I am consigned that these are my days. Now the word consigned can have multiple meanings. One is to commit, to assign, to entrust. I've been entrusted with these days. It's my responsibility to make the most of them. Like Elder Irene said that we quoted last week, not just to endure the storms, but to choose the right while they rage. I've been consigned to that. Then again, there's a more negative connotation of consign. And that means to relegate, as if to get rid of something. We sometimes talk about consignment stores like that. Oh, I don't need it anymore. I don't want it. You take it. And hopefully Nephi's not feeling like that. I've been consigned to these days. Some of you are in difficult circumstances, trying to help build faith in a very struggling branch We're trying to raise kids in a community that doesn't care much for right and wrong. Perhaps you were called to serve a mission in a place where people didn't necessarily gravitate to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope you choose the right definition of consign, that you weren't relegated. You weren't sent to some off the grid location as an attempt to get rid of you. you. You can't do as much damage over there. No, you've been consigned, committed, assigned, entrusted with a difficult circumstance. Will we live up to that responsibility? Will we embrace our days knowing that God has put us into the position where we are for such a time as this? That's actually a third definition of consign, to submit, to agree, to consent, to be resigned to one's fate. That's yielding. Like King Benjamin said, yielding to the enticings of the spirit. Well, in this case, it's yielding to the time and place that God has placed us in. These are our days. May we be consigned to that. I think that's the point that Nephi is getting to. And he's ready to roll up his sleeves and get at it. This wrestling that Nephi is going through to try to come to grips with the time that he's living in, these dark days that are his own, actually reminded me of a few of my favorite quotes from the Lord of the Rings trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien. In the Fellowship of the Ring, there's a point when Frodo, realizing what he's up against and what he has to do in destroying the ring, turns to Gandalf and says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. Can I get a sense of that nostalgia that Nephi's feeling? I wish I'd lived in earlier, easier days. But Gandalf's response to Frodo, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Nephi is coming to grips with that. These are my days, and I'll make the most of them. Fast forward two books, and by the time you get to the return of the king, Gandalf puts it this way. It is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the succor of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. I hope you get a sense of that as we watch Nephi's ministry unfold. I can't do everything. I can't solve all the world's problems. I cannot affect the future permanently, but these are my days? Great, then let me take a hold of them and make a difference in them. Confident that there will yet be later gardeners planting flowers, Pulling weeds, praying for good weather, making a difference in their days, just like I'm trying to make a difference in my own. Now, more fully resigned to his fate, more consigned to his days, lifting his head, seeing the multitudes having assembled, he shifts from speaking vertically to God to speaking horizontally to this gathered multitude. And from verse 13 all the way to the end of this chapter is Nephi's sermon. He begins with a question in verse 13. Again, he's probably startled to see all these people there and he wonders why. Behold, why have you gathered yourselves together? In other words, why are you here? He suggests one possibility at the end of that verse, that I may tell you of your iniquities. That's an interesting curiosity. Are you here out of voyeurism? You just want to see somebody pouring out their heart to God? Again, if people are being condemned for their righteousness, then perhaps it's so rare you don't get to see this kind of pouring out of soul very often. But what feelings, what desires lie behind your desire to view this? If you're here to find out about your iniquities, is it out of pride, almost rejoicing in this sin? Almost a neener, neener, look at the pain we're causing this so-called prophet. There does seem to be a certain hardness that I sometimes see in society, wanting their own wickedness to be on display for the world. I'm curious to see how people are going to react to it, almost the, the shock and awe of sin. Or is yours a more humble approach? Have you come in hopes that I will open up this Johari window and help you see your blind spot so that as I testify of your iniquities, you'll be able to recognize them and repent? Again, what is your attitude in coming? What was my attitude in climbing this tower? It wasn't to be seen of you. Verse 14, I've got upon my tower to pour out my soul to my God because of the exceeding sorrow of my heart. And that sorrow grows out of your iniquities. Important details here. This is sorrow. It's not anger. It's not frustration. It's not pride. In fact, it's not about Nephi. I think sometimes we get caught up in this, I'm supposed to be serving in this calling, or I'm supposed to be succeeding in this mission. And all these people are getting in the way of it. It's about me, and they're stopping me from finding the success I always pictured. I don't sense any of that in Nephi. It's not about him. It's about them wickedness never was happiness. I get that. My great grandpa taught that to my great uncle. And so it's your sorrow, whether you recognize it or not, that is causing my own. Verse 15, because of my mourning and lamentation, ye have gathered yourselves together and do marvel. And that's good. You have great need to marvel. You ought to marvel, but not marveling at my sorrow, not marveling at my prayer, marveling at your own wickedness, marveling that you are given away that the devil has got so great hold upon your hearts. Interesting phrase, to be given away. In fact, they've given themselves away to the devil. It's interesting because if something is given away, then possession has changed hands. And whose were they? They were meant to belong to the Lord. He did purchase them with a price after all. And yet here, he doesn't even say they have sold themselves. That phrase appears elsewhere in scripture. Instead, They've just given themselves away, which is actually more accurate than selling themselves since Satan has nothing to buy you with. We either allow the Lord to purchase us, accept his redemption, or we have given ourselves away to the adversary. There's a similar phrase in 16, yea, how could you have given way? In 15, you are given away. Now you have given way. To what? To the enticing of him, who is seeking to hurl away your souls down to everlasting misery and endless woe. To give way to someone who wants to hurl away your soul? Why would you yield to that when we should be yielding to the enticings of the Holy Spirit? Verse 17, that seems to be his invitation. Oh, repent ye, repent ye. Why will ye die? Turn ye, turn ye unto the Lord your God. Why has he forsaken you? Beautiful invitations and rhetorical questions in that verse. Turning is repenting. It's the same invitation. And death or being forsaken by God, that's the same result of ignoring that call to change. Verse 18, it is because you have hardened your hearts. That's what happens when the devil has such a great hold upon them, like we saw in 15. He hardens those hearts in hopes that they're not fleshy tables for God to write upon. Yea, ye will not hearken unto the voice of the good shepherd. Yea, ye have provoked him to anger against you. And instead of gathering you, except ye will repent, behold, he shall scatter you forth, that ye shall become meat for dogs and wild beasts. This is strong language. It actually reminds me a lot of Abinadi, trying to paint very graphically the consequences of sin, since softer invitations don't seem to be doing anything. Verse 20, how could you have forgotten your God in the very day that he has delivered you? Talk about a short memory. That has to be willful ignorance. That's echoes of the pride cycle as well, right? In the very day he's delivered you, what's the next step in the cycle? You turn to pride. And that's exactly what he suggests in verse 21. It's to get gain, to be praised of the world. If that's the only reason you're in the prosperity portion, then no wonder deliverance doesn't last long. You're being pulled towards pride before you even get to settle down in the prosperity stage. Get gain, praise of men, that ye might get gold and silver. You've set your hearts upon the riches and the vain things of this world, for the which ye do murder and plunder and steal and bear false witness against your neighbor and do all manner of iniquity. You see, he had seen all of that back in verse four and five, right? We saw that at the beginning. That is well known to him. But back to Johari's window, he wants to make sure it is known to them. You cannot afford to keep wickedness in your own blind spot, or you'll never repent of it. And it will lead to your destruction. So he is bringing it out into the open. Verse 22, for this cause, woe shall come upon you, except ye shall repent. If you will not repent, this great city, all the other great cities round about, you'll have no place in them, because the Lord will not grant unto you strength, as he has hitherto done. To withstand against your enemies. We saw that last week too. Man for man, Nephites are no stronger than Lamanites. And since numbers always seem to be on the Lamanite side, we're in trouble. Your pride kicked out God's presence in your life. And without his enabling power, the strength of the Lord, you're left to your own strength and it will not be sufficient. Verse 23 confirms that. Thus saith the Lord, I will not show unto the wicked of my strength to one more than the other save it be unto those who repent of their sins and hearken unto my words. It's that turning, that repenting, that humbling of oneself that pulls you away from the destruction side because it introduces God's strength back into your life. End of 23 and end of 24, he then compares his Nephite audience to the Lamanites that they tend to look down upon. And he says, it's going to be better for them than for you because you are sinning against a greater light and thus will receive a greater condemnation. Verse 25, the problem here is that you have not just allowed great abomination to come among you, but you've actually united yourself unto it. Yea, to that secret band which was established by Gadianton. Now we're getting closer to this facade side of the Jahari window. And he's going to call out the Gadianton robbers. Scary, dangerous thing to do, but he's got the guts to do it. 26, yea, woe shall come unto you because of that pride which ye have suffered to enter your hearts. And making it more and more clear, this is the pride cycle we're dealing with. And that pride has lifted you up beyond that which is good because of your exceedingly great riches. There seems to be a Goldilocks zone there too of how do you feel about yourself? Is your self-esteem high enough to recognize that you are a child of God who is worth worlds to him? Or has your pride lifted you up beyond that which is good? So 28, again, the call to repent. Except ye repent, ye shall perish. Your land shall be taken from you. You shall be destroyed from off the face of the earth. Just wait for the chair to swivel. Pride always leads to destruction. And in verse 29, I'm not saying this for my sake. I'm saying it for yours. And I'm not saying it just because this is my own opinion. I do not say these things shall be of myself because it's not of myself that I know them. I know these things are true because the Lord God has made them known unto me. Therefore, I testify that they shall be. Now, Nephi's post-prayer sermon is over. And what has he done in terms of the Johari window? If there's any ignorance in the sin of the Nephites, he has pulled them away from their blind spot, out into the light. This is what is going wrong. This is what you're doing wrong. And this is how you come home. You've got to repent. Meanwhile, what's he doing to the Gadianton robbers? Some of whom are among this mixed multitude. He's pulling them out from behind their facade. He's making known to others what they were hoping to keep to themselves, this secrecy. And notice everyone's response in chapter 8. The first 10 verses describe the people's reaction. Verse 1, there were men who were judges who also belonged to the secret band of Gadianton. And what's their response? As we might expect, they were angry now, verse 4 tells us why they were so angry. They were angry with him because he spake plainly unto them concerning their secret works of darkness. You see those two words side by side? Plainly versus secret? They're trying to keep things in the darkness. Nephi is trying to pull them towards the light. He's getting them out of the facade quadrant of the Jahari window. And they don't want that. So they want to put a stop to what Nephi is saying, but they can't. And this is ironic because they're the judges, right? They're the leaders of the people. If something has happened amiss, if Nephi's done something illegal, then they have every right themselves to arrest him, to punish him, to silence him. But they can't do any of that because Nephi hasn't done anything wrong and they know it. In fact, they're worried that the people might know it too. Notice the end of verse four. They durst not lay their own hands upon him, even though those are the hands that bear the authority, right? But they can't lay their hands upon him for they feared the people lest they should cry out against them. This is like in the New Testament. The Pharisees knew they couldn't say anything against John the Baptist because he was such a popular people's prophet. So these judges are worried about popular opinion as well. So what's their hope? Their only hope is to turn popular opinion against Nephi. Again, I can't do anything against Nephi. I keep trying to change the law, but as of yet, Nephi hasn't done anything against it. So I don't have any authority to silence him. But if I can get the people to go from supporting him to opposing him, then they'll take care of the dirty work. This is Pilate washing his hands. See ye to it. I've already admitted, I find no guilt in this man. But if it's true that Vox Populi is Vox Dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God, then let's try to turn public opinion against him. Notice how they do it in verse 1 and 2. They cry out against Nephi saying unto the people, why do ye, again, it's all about you. You need to do this. We can't. Why do ye not seize upon this man and bring him forth that he may be condemned according to the crime which he has done? There's the irony. If he really has committed a crime, then those judges themselves have every right and every responsibility to take care of it. But they know there are no crimes done. We see that confirmed at the end of verse 3 nephi didn't speak anything which was contrary to the commandments of god and hadn't done anything contrary to the laws of man either but these judges can twist his words to at least make it look like he's done this verse 2 why seest thou this man and hearest him revile against this people and against our law now nephi hasn't done neither he hasn't spoken out against their law he's confirmed the right law to their condemnation. They're the ones that are breaking the commandments of God. Again, this is such an echo of Abinadi before King Noah and the wicked priests, accusing him, you have reviled against our law. No, I've spoken in support of your law to your condemnation. Same thing's happening here. So you take some kind of sacred cow, even though they're the ones that are destroying it, the law. You see the hypocrisy there? We're the ones trying to change the law to make righteousness more easily condemned and wickedness more easily supported, and yet here's this so-called prophet that's speaking against the law, and he's speaking against this people. Come on, folks, you got to take this personally. He's reviled you, instead of what Nephi has really done: separated sin from sinner and asked these sinners to overcome their sin, repent. Why else would you die? Turn to the Lord. Come to Him. Verse five: It's more of the same. They cry unto the people saying, why do you suffer this man to revile against us? You see, we're part of you. He's not. He's the outsider. He's reviling you. He's reviling us. For behold, he doth condemn all this people, even unto destruction, which wasn't correct either. He was only condemning the wicked. That's what would bring upon destruction. He isn't condemning all this people. And the moment you repent, you're no longer under that condemnation at all. But these dire threats. Stoking fear, these are great cities shall be taken from us. We shall have no place in them. And then taking a page from the wicked people of Ammonihah's book, they say in verse 6, we know that this is impossible. We are powerful. Our cities are great. Therefore, our enemies can have no power over us. Sound like Laman and Lemuel defending the people in Jerusalem? Again, sound like Ammonihah? Oh, even if you said that this city should be destroyed in one day, we know that couldn't possibly happen or any of us, whenever we try to deny the consequences of sin. oh, it won't happen to us. We're strong enough to get out of it. Verse 7, this is how they stir up the people to anger against Nephi. This is how they raise contentions among them. That's an interesting tactic as well, to raise contentions among them. It's like splitting this group into subgroups in hopes that they'll start fighting each other. Either way, that contention is of the devil. We'll find out in 3 Nephi 11. Drives out the spirit of the Lord just get people angry. You don't even care what they're angry about or who they're angry against. But there are some in verse 7 who cry out in Nephi's defense, let this man alone. And they base their defense on two details. Number one, he's a good man. There's the witness of character. And number two, he's right about what we've been doing wrong. You see, for some of these people, it wasn't blind spot. It was facade that was the problem. And Nephi saw straight through it, and they recognized that. Middle of verse 8, we know that he has testified aright unto us concerning our iniquities. He's ripped off the cover. He's pulled aside the curtain. He knows things about us we didn't want anybody to know. And who can do that but a prophet? That's the sense in verse 9. Behold, if he had not been a prophet, he could not have testified concerning those things. And if he's been right about our present and our past, then why couldn't he be right about our future? That's the sense they're getting at the end of verse seven. Those things which he saith will surely come to pass, except we repent. Verse eight, all the judgments will come upon us, which he has testified unto us. Again, because we know that he's testified aright concerning our iniquities. Now in verse 10, those people who sought to destroy Nephi were compelled because of their fear not to lay their hands upon him. He'd gained favor in the eyes of some. Others were afraid of his influence. So Nephi saw an opportunity to continue speaking. And that's exactly what he did. And from verse 11, all the way to the end of this chapter, we see his sermon continue, picking up where he left off in chapter seven. This time though, he calls some additional witnesses to the stand. After all, although some people seem to be supporting him down below, he probably feels a little lonely up there on top of his tower. Well, he's got a whole cloud of witnesses to call upon. Verse 11, he starts with Moses. Behold, my brethren, have you not read that God gave power unto one man, even Moses, to smite upon the waters of the Red Sea, and they parted hither and thither, insomuch that the Israelites, who are our fathers, came through upon dry ground, the waters closed upon the armies of the Egyptians, and swallowed them up? Now, what's he getting at by invoking the exodus? Verse 12, if God can give unto this man such power, then why can't he give me power too? Why dispute among yourselves and say that he hath given unto me no power, whereby I may know concerning the judgments that shall come upon you, except you repent. Ah, that's why you invoked Moses. It's kind of like Nephi with his brothers. If God can help Moses get Israel out from Pharaoh's thumb, then why can't he help us get the brass plates from Laban? Or as he says later, as they're building the ship, if God can help Moses part the waters, then he could do the same thing to me. And compared to that, him telling me how to build a ship is a piece of cake. Same thing here. If God can part waters and free Israel from Egyptian bondage, then why can't he inspire me to know how to tell you to escape the bondage of your own sin? And then he takes that example of Moses and turns it to the real point he's trying to make here. Verse 13. But behold, ye not only deny my words, but ye also deny all the words which have been spoken by our fathers and also the words which were spoken by this man, Moses. It's like speaking of Moses, here's something he taught. So speaking of Moses, what did he talk about? He had great power given unto him. And the words that he spoke were concerning the coming of the Messiah. Ah, here's the point I'm trying to make. This is not about Moses. This is about the Messiah. So I call Moses to the stand basically to testify of God's power in allowing the impossible to become possible. God did that in Moses's case. He's doing that in my own. But while I've got you on the stand, Moses, what is it that you really want to talk about? Oh, I want to talk about the coming of the Messiah. Verse 14, did he not bear record that the Son of God should come? And as he lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness, even so shall he be lifted up who should come. Remember, Nephi's point is to cry repentance, and repentance only comes about through the redemption of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about him. That's the point of this discourse. If chapter seven's sermon was about what you're doing wrong, then chapter eight's sermon is about what the Lord will do to make things right. He will be raised up like the brazen serpent. Verse 15, so look and live as many as should look upon that servant should live. Even so, as many as should look upon the Son of God with faith, having a contrite spirit, which is what I'm trying to draw out of you through these cries to repent. If you do, you'll live even that life, which is eternal. Now, 16, Moses wasn't the only one to testify of these things. All the holy prophets have from Abraham on down. 17, Abraham saw the Messiah's coming. It filled him with gladness. He rejoiced. 18. Abraham wasn't alone in that. There were many before the days of Abraham who were called by the order of God, yea, even after the order of his son. And this that it should be shown unto the people, a great many thousand years before his coming, that even redemption should come unto them. You see what Nephi is trying to do to convince this jury to pass judgment upon sin and wickedness, to pass judgment upon the Gadianton judges themselves, and to repent and turn to the Lord? I call Moses to the stand. I call Abraham to the stand. I call holy prophets before and after. In 19, there have been many prophets who have testified these things. I call Zenos to the stand. He testified boldly for the which he was slain. You see Gadianton and robbers? I know what you're after too, to silence the prophet. So no one stands in your way. In verse 20, I call Zenic to the stand and Esaias and Isaiah and Jeremiah In fact, let's stick with Jeremiah for a second, since he testified of the destruction of Jerusalem, just like I'm testifying of the destruction of Nephite civilization, if we don't wake up and repent. We knew he was right about that too. With the benefit of hindsight, which is always 20-20, we know that Jeremiah was right. After all, 21, are you going to dispute that Jerusalem was destroyed? It's one thing for Laman and Lemuel to wonder and say, no, it probably didn't happen. It couldn't possibly have been destroyed. But we can't make those kind of glib denials. The sons of Zedekiah, king in Jerusalem at the time. Yes, his sons were slain, but not all of them. What about Mulek, who came to the Americas, just like Father Lehi did? We know from them that Jerusalem was destroyed. Verse 22, how about bringing Lehi and Nephi, our ancestors, to the witness stand. Our father Lehi was driven out of Jerusalem because he testified of these things. Nephi testified of these things. Almost all of our fathers, even down to this time, yea, they have testified of the coming of Christ and have looked forward and have rejoiced in his day which is to come. I'm not just here to give prophecies of doom and gloom. I'd much rather declare the good tidings of great joy, which shall be unto all people. I want to rejoice in the Lord with you, but to turn you to him, I have to pull you out of your blind spot and remove the facade that you're hiding behind. You need to know as you are known. You have got to clearly see where you stand. And once you do, you'll know you need Christ and you will look forward to his coming and rejoice in that as the only hope we have. Verse 23, he is God and he is with them. He's with all of those witnesses. He manifests himself unto them. They were redeemed by him. They gave unto him glory because of that which is to come. Are you ready to do likewise? Are you ready to join them and join me and most importantly, join the Lord To be with him as he wants to be with you. That he might manifest himself unto you. That you can be redeemed of him. So that you can glory in him. Just like these prophets that went before you. Come into the cloud of witnesses. Now 24. Now seeing you know these things. And cannot deny them except ye shall lie. Again he's pulling everything into the open space. That open forum. I know it you know it. Sure, you can lie and keep things in this intentional blind spot, this willful ignorance on your part. Sure, you can keep sinning and hope that it doesn't come out into the open. Up till now, you've rejected all these things, notwithstanding so many evidences which ye have received. And this is the court case that Nephi is laying out before them. He's called witness after witness to the stand, and he's laid out all of this evidence. Now they need to decide as judge and jury. You have received all things, both in heaven and all things in the earth, as a witness that they are true. Q. Alma's testimony against Korahor. Unfortunately, verse 25, up till now ye have rejected the truth and rebelled against your holy God. He's yours if you'll have him and you'll be his because he will have you. Even at this time, instead of laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven where nothing doth corrupt and where nothing can come which is unclean, ye are heaping up for yourselves wrath against the day of judgment. Choose what you want to pile up there, heavenly treasures or divine wrath. You are heaping up constantly one or the other. Verse 26, at this time you are ripening because of your murders and your fornication and your wickedness ripening for everlasting destruction. And except ye repent, it will come unto you soon. It is now, even at your doors. You sense this urgency on Nephi's part? Yea, go ye in unto the judgment seat and search. Behold, your judge is murdered. He lieth in his blood and he hath been murdered by his brother who seeketh to sit in the judgment seat. Wow, this must have even taken Nephi by surprise. I doubt this was some kind of intentional crescendo he was leading up to it just came out of his open mouth as God filled it. You want more evidence that I can see the sin within you? Speaking rather generally, well then let me speak very specifically of one particular sin that has just been committed, something that I couldn't possibly know. You see, as a prophet trying to pull everything into that open space on the Johari window, you see, even if you have just good mortal eyes, if you're quick to observe, then you can probably do a lot to pull people out of the blind spot and out from behind the facade. But to pull things out from the hidden space that nobody knows, well, only a God can do that, or in this case, a God-inspired prophet. I'll tell you something that not only you don't know, or that you don't want others to know, I'll tell you what nobody knows, including me, without the help of God the judge is dead and his brother did it. And then verse 28, behold, they both belong to your secret band, not so secret after all, whose author is Gadianton. Of course, Gadianton doesn't deserve all the credit. And the evil one who seeketh to destroy the souls of men. Talk about bringing darkness out into the light. Talk about making the unknown known. Talk about speaking plainly Of what others want to keep in secret and the irony here both victim and perpetrator are part of the same band there is no loyalty no love loss on that side of things vain ambition always spells the death of brotherly love it's just now being personified right before you go and look you'll see the painful truth well in chapter nine they do go and look and they do see the painful truth. Verses one through five tell the tale. Five people that were there at the foot of Nephi's tower go running to the judgment seat to see what they can find. Now, it says in verse two, we don't believe what he said, but now at least we'll have evidence. I'm going with skepticism. Disbelief is my default here, but if it's true, then I'll believe him this would be the sign that I need, the evidence. He talked about that in chapter 8. Well, this is the evidence that I would want. There's no other possible way he could know this. So if he knows this, then I definitely trust that he knows the future consequences of our sin and that he knows the gravity of those sins to begin with. Now, when they get to the judgment seat and see that it was exactly as Nephi had described, then they do believe. Verse 5, when they saw, they believed fear came upon them lest all the judgments which nephi had spoken should come upon the people and they quaked and they fell to the earth now here we start to see different levels of belief or different kind of timetable almost you have a nephi who believes without having to be shown anything i'll open my mouth and i'll let god fill it and i'll trust everything that he reveals to me then you get some people that we met back in chapter eight who believe in Nephi as a prophet because he was right about their wickedness. They recognize at least that much. Now, then you have this next level, these five that go out in search of their sign. I want real proof, something that Nephi couldn't possibly know in any other way. And now they believe. But then later we'll also see there were others that even with that proof, that evidence still refused to believe. In simplest terms, number one, there are those who believe without seeing. That's Nephi. Number two, there are those that believe only once they see. Those are these five who fainted. And then third, there are those who will not believe even when they see. And that describes those judges and other members of Gadianton's secret band. Now, we don't need to get into too much detail in this story, but the five who run to see if it's true, they faint out of just shock that it actually was right. But as they're passed out at the scene of the crime, with the body of the judge right there in front of them? Well, people that didn't know anything that was going on at Nephi's tower come by, see this scene, and think, wow, God must have stopped them in their tracks. He halted the flight. These five must be the ones who killed the king. And so they sent him to prison. Well, some more time passes. Eventually, this multitude, they weren't as quick as the five, but they come over and start wondering what's going on. End up asking the people, well, where are the five people who came to check it out first? And they're like, well, I don't know anything about five people coming to check it out. But we do know the five people that killed them. They're in prison. Well, wait, this is sounding kind of coincidental. Who are these five? They bring them out and realize, oh, these are the ones that came immediately to see if it was true. They did not do it. They've got a good alibi. We can all back them up for that. And so they're freed. And in fact, right as they're freed, this is verse 18, they begin rebuking the judges in the words that they've spoken against Nephi and contend with them one by one insomuch that they had confound them. In fact, if you jump ahead to verse 39, some of the Nephites believe on Nephi's words and then there were some also who believed because of the testimony of the five, for they had been converted while they were in prison. These skeptics turned converts, then turned missionary, and started sharing with others in prison, you've got to trust in this Nephi guy. He can know things that no one else could know. I guess we could add one more entry then on our list of how people come to believe or not believe. Those five only believed when they saw for themselves, and yet the people that they taught believed on their words. A lot of different ways we can come to know for ourselves. Well, where are the members of the Gadiantins band in all of this? Go back to verse 16. You see, if they were worried about popular opinion backing up Nephi before, then it's only going to get worse now. He's just given them a sign, provided them with a miracle. It was enough for the five, right? Now in 16, what do they do? They come up with a new possibility. They try to explain it away. They say in 16, behold, we know. Now we know really? Well, no, this is your insinuation, your guess, but your accusation. We know that this Nephi must have agreed with someone to slay the judge that he might declare it unto us, that he might convince us unto his faith, that he might raise himself to be a great man, chosen of God and a prophet. Talk about the pot calling the kettle black, accusing him of the kind of self-aggrandizing manipulations and intrigues that they themselves were guilty of. You're the ones that are trying to raise yourselves into some great men. You're the ones trying to convert the multitudes to see things the way you do. In fact, you're the ones that agree among yourselves to let the wicked go free if, as long as they can pay their way. Remember the secret oaths and plans of the Gadianton robbers. Such hypocrisy here, accusing Nephi of doing everything that they are doing themselves. Well, in spite of those five newly converted that are there defending Nephi, In 19, those other judges caused that Nephi should be taken and bound, brought before the multitude, and they begin to question him in diverse ways that they might cross him, that they might accuse him to death, just like the priests of Noah had done with Abinadi. In 20, they say, thou art confederate. Who is this man that hath done this murder? Tell us, acknowledge thy fault. And then, shockingly, they say, behold, here is money. So bribing him, and not only bribing him with money, bribing him with his life. Also, we will grant unto thee thy life, if thou wilt tell us, and acknowledge the agreement which thou hast made with him. That's an interesting plea bargain. If you've been an accessory to the murder of the judge, I don't know how leniency could even be an option here. But you see what they're trying to do is we just, we have to character assassinate Nephi. We have to remove any possibility of influence. He's the one standing in our way. So if we can discredit him before the multitude, I mean, we don't care what happened to the chief judge, big deal. Political assassinations happen all the time. Remember, Gadianton's band was on both the receiving and giving end of this one. But we've got to get Nephi out of the way. So we won't punish you. In fact, we'll pay you whatever it takes to remove your street cred among the multitude. 21 Nephi sees straight through it. Oh, ye fools, ye uncircumcised of heart. You blind, you stiff-necked people. Do you have any idea how long the Lord your God will suffer you that you shall go on in this your way of sin? 22. You ought to begin to howl and mourn because of the great destruction which at this time doth await you except ye shall repent. He's picking up where he left off in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 here in chapter 9. He then sums up the accusation that they are throwing at him that Cisorum, who's the chief judge, is dead because I agreed behind the scenes with his brother Seantum to kill him? Well, here's what you need to do. I'll give you another sign since the first one seems to be insufficient for your hardened hearts. Verse 26, go to the house of Seantum, the brother of Cisorum. And this is what you need to say. 27, has Nephi, the pretended prophet who doth prophesy so much evil concerning this people, agreed with thee in the which ye have murdered Cisorum, who is your brother? And he'll say no. And then second follow-up question, ask him, confront him more directly. Well, have you done it? And then he'll stand with fear. He won't know what to say. He'll deny it. He'll act completely surprised. He'll act astonished. He'll declare his innocence. But look closely in 31. You'll find blood upon the skirts of his cloak. And when you confront him with that evidence and accuse him directly that this is the blood of your brother that you've slain, then he'll tremble look pale, even as if death had come upon him. And you'll know that he's guilty. With that, even greater fear will come upon him and he'll finally confess and deny no more that he's done it. And then he'll say, verse 36, that I, Nephi, know nothing concerning the matter, save it were given unto me by the power of God. You see, I am confederate in a way, but I haven't made a deal with Syantum. I've made a covenant with God. And it's that companionship that has allowed me to know of these things, which otherwise could not be known. Once all this happens, then shall ye know that I am an honest man. More importantly, that I'm a holy man, one sent unto you from God. Now, two interesting details really quick here. One is the wisdom of Nephi in setting up the interrogation the way he did. You see, if he had started by establishing Siantum's guilt, it may have been more difficult for him then to establish his own innocence. Because Siantum, if he's anything like the adversary that inspired him, remember the devil in 2 Nephi 2 is described as wanting all men to be miserable like unto himself. Well, if Siantum's going down and he knows it, then as one who probably opposed Nephi from the start, since Siantum was part of Gadianton's band as well, then couldn't he have lied about Nephi's involvement. So if I'm going down, I'm going to take Nephi down with me. Yeah. He was Confederate. I told him all about it. In fact, those Gadianton judges were going to let Nephi off the hook with a plea deal. Maybe they'll do the same for me. After all, their ultimate goal was to discredit Nephi. Well, this could still happen. So I think it's genius on the part of Nephi to start with his own innocence and then prove Siantum's guilt. You see, as Siantum is still in the dark about all this, to go with an initial hint of accusation in 27. Hey, has Nephi agreed with you about killing your brother? You see, if he said yes to that, to prove Nephi's guilt, then he's proven his own as well. And that's what he's trying to keep from happening. So it's kind of amazing how Nephi sets it up, that Siantum, in order to try to preserve his own innocence, actually vouches for the innocence of Nephi from the beginning. The other part I find fascinating is the specific things that Nephi is prophesying that Siantum will do. Listen to this in order. There will be a recognition of guilt, a feeling of fear, a confession of sin, and then a testimony of the prophet's words. Because that's exactly what Nephi is hoping for among the society at large. A recognition of their sin as he's crying repentance. A feeling of godly sorrow for what they've done a confession of that sin to God, real repentance, and a testimony that what he has said as God's servant is true, that it comes from God. What Nephi is doing with Siantum is a microcosm of what he's trying to do in Nephite society. It's amazing. Well, everything happens exactly as he says. As a result in verse 40, there were some among the people who said that Nephi was a prophet. Well, go figure. But then ironically, verse 41, there are others who said, behold, he is a God. For except he was a God, he could not know of all things. He's told us the thoughts of our hearts. He's identified what happened to the chief judge. Nobody could do this but God. It's amazing that the adversary doesn't care what side we fall off of. As long as we fall off the celestial center of the straight and narrow path. He preferred keeping them on one extreme. This is not a prophet of God. Don't listen to him. And instead of correcting, he ends up overcorrecting. Well, he must be God himself. Worship him. You picture Nephi going, Please. can we find the happy medium? I'm neither all man or all God. I'm neither uninspired nor infallible. I don't know everything, but I do know more than most. And it's because God is with me and God wants to be with you. You can only be with him though, if you will repent. So repent. Or the destruction of Cesorum and Siantum, will merely be previews of coming attractions or in your case, coming destructions. That is always what happens when we do not choose to repent.